This past summer, uh, Becky and I had the uh, wonderful opportunity to take a vacation in Europe. Um, uh, in the two weeks that we traveled, we, we flew into Paris, and then we flew on from there down to Croatia. And then from there, after we spent a week there in Croatia, we went up, uh, went to Italy and traveled down through Italy and left there, flew out of Rome um, and flew back up into Paris and back in the States. Um, and we had never been to Croatia uh, or Italy before, and I, I got to tell you, we had a great time in, in both of those, uh, those countries. Whenever we, we would visit a country, of course, we'd have to get out our passports and we'd have to get them stamped and then we would, we would exchange currencies if, if we needed to and then we'd go off and we'd go traveling around the country from one city to the next city to the next city. Um, we'd wander through outdoor markets and we would, uh, you know, go through different museums and we enjoyed... Uh, uh, sampling the different cuisine from the different areas. Um, we'd exchange a few niceties you know, with, the, with the locals. We, we'd sit on steps of cathedrals and we would just observe and watch the, 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 the busyness of the towns and the locations we were at go by. Of course, we took a, a couple of dozen photographs and... Um, you know, we would purchase a little something to remind us of, of the fact that we had visited that location, that city. And then after that, that we were off. We were off to the next city. I mean, we had a wonderful vacation. I got to tell you, um, our, our hearts weren't changed, though, in any significant way uh, by our little visits. But then, <laughs> I mean, they weren't meant to be. I mean, we were, we were tourists. Um, it seems to me that um, what I've just described um, about our vacation is very close to many people's understanding of the congregational life of a, of a local church. On any given Sunday, many tourists can be found in the church. Um, they pop in for an hour or sing a chorus or two. They... Um, uh, exchange niceties with the locals. <laughs> um, they might sample some of the local cuisine, you know, donuts, a little coffee. Um, maybe they might grab a bulletin or, 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 or maybe a gift bag to remind them of their visit. And then they race off to their cars to make sure they, they uh, beat the crowd to their favorite restaurant or, uh, or, or get home before the game starts. For many people, church is simply that. It's about, well, it's about being a tourist. <laughs> um, and our land, I got to tell you, is full of tourist-friendly churches. But Ephesians, Ephesians has given us a very different picture of the church, hasn't it? We're to be a family. Joined together unified around Jesus and growing together into the fullness of Christ. This morning, we are going to wrap up our series on Ephesians. Um, if you haven't been with us, we have been in this uh, study of this book of Ephesians, this letter that Paul has written to the Ephesian church. Um, we've been in that since uh, September 
And uh, since then, we've covered a lot of ground, and um, uh, we've learned a lot of different lessons. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to wrap all this series up today um, uh, by going back and looking at four major lessons uh, from this letter of Ephesians. So I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians in your Bibles. Now we're going to be skipping around throughout this whole book, and so um, you might not be able to uh, follow along or keep up, but we're going to have the scripture passages uh, up on the screen behind you as we go through um, our review here. Different lessons, four different lessons, uh, major lessons out of the book of Ephesians I want to remind us of this morning. The first lesson is this. As a Christian, you are now in Christ. Simple lesson, but significant lesson. In fact, let's go back to the very first uh, verse out of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Look at this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul here gives us two locations. First of all, there's the physical location he is writing to. They're in Ephesus, right? Um, to the saints who are in Ephesus. And then there's the spiritual location that they are in. They are faithful in Christ Jesus. That phrase, in Christ Jesus, is significant. As we, go, as we went through this letter, um, you might have uh, discovered this phrase repeated over and over and over again. Um, it was repeated, in fact, uh, 36 times in the book of Ephesians. In fact, in the first 14 verses, um, Paul repeats that phrase or its counterpart in him 10 times in the first 14 verses. See, to be in Christ is to be personally united to Christ, like um, branches are united with, uh, in, in the vine. <laughs> um, when Paul uses this phrase, he, he's not talking about people believing in Christ, coming to faith in Christ. What he's talking about, he's referring to our position in Christ, that we are in Christ as Christ followers, Christ believers. He's talking about our union with Christ. And I got to tell you, this concept is one, if not the most important part of Paul's theology. I mean, you go, you go back through the... Uh, Paul's 13 letters, and you will find him using this phrase, in Christ, or in the Lord, or in him, over 164 times. For example, in Romans 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ. In other words, the result of Jesus Christ's atonement, his death on the cross for our sins, is that for those who are in Christ, they're no longer condemned. Now, to help us kind of understand this, it's helped me understand a little bit, get a, a good picture of what it means to be in Christ. I, I take you back to uh, Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, uh, God told Noah to build an ark. Remember that story? <laughs> um, he said, go, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and cover it inside and out with pitch. Now that word pitch 
is the word atonement, okay? In other words, you shall cover it inside and outside with atonement. It's the atonement of your sin by Jesus Christ that saves you, okay? You are covered with it inside and out. Then continuing in Genesis uh, chapter 6, it said, Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Of course, Noah's family and all the animals, they, you know, they, they get into the ark and, and look what God's going to do. He says, And those that entered, male and female, all flesh entered as God had commanded, and the Lord closed him in. There's a great emphasis being placed on the fact that Noah got into the ark. And it's the same concept of us being in Jesus Christ. It says God put him in the ark and shut the door. And when you're in Christ, that is your position. You're in the atonement. Because we are in Christ, Paul tells us. Because we're in the atonement, Paul tells us in Ephesians. First chapter of Ephesians, he says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. In him, <laughs> we've been chosen. In him, we have been redeemed and we've been forgiven. In him, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. In Christ, we, have, we who once were dead have been made alive. That's our position. Um, and listen, if you are living in Christ, that changes everything. It changes how you live. Christ is now the one who shapes who we are. He is the sphere of influence in which we are to live. Christ is, because we're in him. See, other people, they, they live in all these other spheres of influence. But as Christ followers, we live in Christ. And that determines how we're to live, Paul tells us. We're to live in the sphere of his light. We're to take off the old self and, and, and put on the, the new self in our relationships, he says. Since we're living in this sphere of in Christ, we are to live in mutual submission, serving one another, imitating the love and humility and servanthood of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's the sphere we now live in. We are in Christ. Huge lesson. Significant lesson. Second lesson. Since you are in Christ, you belong to his family. I mean, that's been our overriding theme, right? Through this whole series as we've looked at this book uh, of Ephesians. Together, we've titled it, We Are Family. <laughs> And throughout this letter, Paul is talking about the, the, the church as uh, a family. For example, in verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2, he says, he calls God our Father. Um, down in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul describes believers as God's adopted sons and daughters. We are adopted 
into God's family. In Paul's powerful prayer at the end, uh, or at the very beginning of uh, chapter 3, verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Um, Then as he begins chapter 5, he challenges us to be imitators of God as beloved children, part of God's family. In Christ, we belong to God's family. See, one of the major um, issues in the first century church was uh, there's this great divide between the Jew and and the Gentile. And some questioned, um, does a Gentile need to become a Jew before they uh, can become a Christian? The New Testament authors they offered a decisive um, answer to that question. They said, no, no, you you don't have to become a a Jew before you become a Christian. And in the second half of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul unpacks the theology behind this position. I want you to look with me. This whole section, a second part of uh, uh, Ephesians 2 hinges on on three verses, three hinges here. Look with me, First one is verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, and then down in verse 13, it says, but now in Christ Jesus, and then down in, in verse uh, uh, 19, what he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. What were we? Verses 11 and 12 tell us we once, we were separated from Christ. We were excluded from citizenship in, in Israel. We were foreigners to the covenant, uh, uh, covenant of promise without hope and without God in this world. What are we no longer, he says? Verses 19 and 21 tell us now, though we're, we're fellow citizens, we're members of God's household. We are now in God's family. What made the difference? Verse 13 told us it was a divine reconciliation. Jesus and his his cross changed our status as as foreigners and outcasts and aliens, the excluded, the outsiders, in a word, enemies of God and others. But now, but now, in Christ, Christ has made us citizens, chosen people, covenant people, family members, those who belong both to God and to one another. Have you ever walked into, uh, you know, uh, something new, a new place to you? Maybe it was a, uh, maybe it was a school you'd never been before. Maybe it was a a neighbor's house for a, a neighborhood party of some sort. Maybe it was a church. You walked in and you felt like you didn't fit. I mean, everybody else was over here talking. They're small groups and they were kind of broken up in small groups and they're laughing and talking together. And you looked around and you said, Boy, everyone looks different than me. Looked around and you realized people were talking about things that you had no idea about. My guess is that if you were ever in that situation, um, you experience a feeling of not belonging, right? I mean, not belonging, that's a universal struggle. Many of us go through 
life feeling like we don't belong, like we're alienated, disenfranchised. We don't fit. But let me tell you, the relentless, creative energy of God reaches, reaches out to tell us that believing in him means we belong. In Christ, you belong. You are no longer alienated. <laughs> you belong to his family. In Christ, we've been brought home to God. We live in God's house as, as members of his, his family. We belong with God and are involved in, in uh, what he is doing. And I got to tell you, those sitting around you this morning are part of your family. We did this earlier in our series, so I want you to try it again. Turn to the person next to you and say, boy, I'm glad you're part of God's family. Yeah. I'm glad you're part of God's family. We are family. <laughs> Pastor Lee Eckloff uh, tells a, a story, a personal story, about um, how he had to rely on what his town growing up in South Dakota called storm um, homes. He, he says, the small town of Britain, South Dakota, where I grew up, current population of about 1,200 people and lots more cattle, <laughs> has often been the locus of severe winter weather. During the har harshest months, the temperature drops below zero, but historically, the real dangers come from blizzards. The blizzards can develop quickly, causing the country roads to become snowbound and impassable. Throughout the 1940s and 50s, the local school district had a creative way for keeping kids safe when a blizzard hit on a school day. See, on a normal day, the school students would just take one of the eight school buses directly back home to their houses. But occasionally, a blizzard would descend during the school day, and it wasn't safe to bus the kids home. So the school devised a system where every farm kid had a family in town who would be prepared to take them in. Their parents would know they were fed and safe in their neighbor's house. He continues, says, a couple of years ago when I was home visiting Britain in the rural, rural church where I grew up, one of my former neighbors, Roger Johnson, mentioned to me that our home in town had been his storm house. That's what we called them. Storm homes. Our little greenhouse on 7th Street was Roger's refuge when a terrible storm came in. Brothers and sisters, can I tell you? That's what every church is supposed to be. A storm home. By the grace of God, our church should be a safe place. A home that... Um, for each other, uh, 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 where each other is, a, is a, a family of faith, where we can count on each other, where we're committed to each other, where we sustain each other. No one should be allowed to feel like an, an outsider here at First Free. All people should know that they belong. Because if you are in Christ, friends, if you're in Christ, you belong to his family. A third lesson that we have learned as we've gone through this book of Ephesians 
is since you belong to this new family, you must make every effort to keep the unity of the family. When we read um, Ephesians, um, I don't know about you, but we are reminded over and over again that God's in the uniting business. And in chapter 4, Paul pushes us to live out the presence of that unity that Jesus gave his life to win for us. Look with me, chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Look down with me, verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He gives us practical advice on how we are to keep the unity uh, as, as we move uh, through chapter 4 and chapter 5, chapter 6, tells us we must be completely humble and gentle. And we're to bear with one another in love, and we must find that part that we play um, in the church and, and in the world and play that part. Why? Because there's one God, one Lord, one spirit, one body, one faith. And the fruit of this unity in the family will be all of our maturity in Christ. Now, I want to be clear on this. The apostle tells us um, that this is not a family that never disagrees. <laughs> As though it's some utopian community of uh, eternal yes men and yes women, um, you know? No, we're, we're to speak the truth in love. Nor does he tell us that the church is supposed to be this uh, community of conformity, where we all look the same and sound the same and, you know, think the same. In fact, Ephesians 4 is actually a portrait of rich diversity. God gives us the different gifts in, in the church, calling each person in the church to use their different gifts and, and, and to, to, to communicate and, 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 and play out their different roles. Um, but this diversity, understand this, this diversity in the church is rooted in unity. We all love and we all serve Jesus our common ground, one God, uh, one faith, one baptism, one hope is vastly uh, wider and stronger than our differences. Philip Yancey writes, as I read accounts of the New Testament church, no characteristic stands out more sharply than diversity. Beginning with the Pentecost, with Pentecost, the Christian church dismantled barriers of gender, race, social class that marked Jewish congregations. Paul, who as a rabbi had given thanks daily that he was not born a woman, a slave, or a Gentile, marveled over the radical change. He wrote, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Yancey continues, one modern Indian pastor told me most of what happens in Christian churches, including even miracles, can be duplicated in Hindu and Muslim congregations. But in my area, only Christians strive, however ineptly. 
to mix men and women of different castes, races, and social groups. That's the real miracle. Then he continues, diversity complicates rather than simplifies life. <laughs> Perhaps for this reason, we tend to surround ourselves with people of similar age and economic class and opinions. Church offers a place where infants and grandparents, unemployed and executives, immigrants and blue bloods can come together. He says, just yesterday, I sat sandwiched between an elderly man hooked up to a puffing oxygen tank and a breastfeeding baby who grunted loudly and contentedly throughout the sermon. Where else can you find that mixture? We are a diverse family. And because we're a diverse family, let me tell you, we must make every effort to keep the unity of the family. And that brings me to a fourth lesson. This unity of our family, the church, ought to be a portrait of Jesus Christ. In our series this fall, um, uh, we uh, skipped over the first 13 verses of, of chapter 3. Uh, and in those verses, um, Paul talks about two mysteries. The, the first mystery is the mystery of Christ. Look with me at verse 4, chapter 3, verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, he says. What's the mystery of Christ? Well, it's just another way of, of referring to the whole message of the gospel, to the whole truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel, the good news, salvation is all in Christ, right? This is the message that, that was given to Paul to, to preach, this mystery, this gospel. And then down in verse 6 of chapter 3, Paul tells us about a second mystery. Look with me. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So what's the second mystery? Second mystery is the unity of the church. What we've, what we've just been talking about, that God has created this new people. He's created this new family. See, Christ, the mystery is Christ has brought these opposites together. Um, you know, Jews despised Gentiles, and Gentiles despised the Jews. Barriers like that were absolute in the, in the pre-Christian world. But in Christ, what once was impossible has now been accomplished. Have you ever tried to bring um, oil and water together? <laughs> um, tried to mix those two? It doesn't work, does it? I mean, they separate immediately. What you need is an emulsifier, um, something that will bring the two liquids together. Eggs are emulsifiers. And you mix egg, eggs with oil and water and a few other ingredients, what do you get? Mayonnaise, right? Mayonnaise, unbelievable. Paul says that uh, uh, a Christ is the emulsifier between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the result is, okay, sort of crude, but it's kind of like delicious mayonnaise. 
the unity of the church together. And the purpose of this unity is that when our our topsy-turvy, divided world looks at us, a unified family, they will see a portrait of Jesus Christ. They will see the whole measure of the fullness of Christ in us. In us, together. In fact, look with me at verse 10. Look what he says here. Chapter 3, verse 10. So that through the church... That's us. That's the family of God through the church. The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Amazing, isn't it? That's the purpose. It is through the church that Christ displays his wisdom and his glory. Both the earthly and heavenly audience. is It's a wisdom that even the angels were surprised by. I mean, can you imagine that? <laughs> Think about it. Here are angels. They've always been in the presence of God. They've always been there. And yet, they're staggered, staggered, uh, dumbfounded by God's wisdom when they look at us together, his family, the church. Why? Because of our unity. Because God has taken... Those who are divided, and he's put them together as one in Christ Jesus and named it the church. <laughs> because God has set things up in such a way that if anyone asks, hey, hey, what's Jesus like? Who is Jesus? Is he loving? Is he good? Is Jesus just? Is Jesus generous? Does he comfort the oppressed? <laughs> Will he confront the oppressor? All they should have to do is look at the church to get the answer. Our unity ought to be a portrait of Jesus Christ. The late columnist Mike Rocco um, writes about a conversation he had with a gentleman named Slats uh, Grubovnik, a man who sold Christmas trees. Slats remembered one couple on the hunt for a Christmas tree. The guy was skinny with a big Adam's apple, small chin. And, well, she was kind of pretty. But both wore clothes from the bottom of the bin of the Salvation Army store. After finding only trees that were too expensive, they found a scotch pine that was, well, it was okay on one side. It's pretty bare on the other. And then they picked up another tree. Oh, it wasn't much better. Full on one side, scraggly on the other. She whispered something, and he asked, well, would, would he take $3? Would Slats take $3? Would that be okay? Slats figured, well, <laughs> both trees wouldn't be able to be sold, so um, he agreed. A few days later, Slats was walking down the street and saw a beautiful tree in the couple's apartment. It was thick and well-rounded. He knocked on the door. 
And they told him how they had worked the two trees close together where the branches were thin. And then they tied the trunks together with a wire and the branches overlapped and formed a tree so thick that you couldn't even see the wires holding the tree together. And Slash described it as a tiny forest of its own. <laughs> so that's the secret, Slats asserts. You take two trees that aren't perfect, they have flaws. They might even be homely. That maybe nobody else would want. And if you put them together just right, you can come up with something really beautiful. You and I put together just right by God's grace, by God's power, by God's love, are to be God's object lesson to the universe. It's the unity of the church that displays God's wisdom. So that when the world looks at us, the church, God's family, the portrait of Jesus that they should see is the clearest one of a Savior who reconciles. This past week, I received an email from a person in our church family telling me that what has stuck out to him about this study this past fall of Ephesians is the importance of the unity of the church, both local and global. The simplicity of the mission, build up the church and love and minister to one another. Every believer is called to build up the church for through his church, redeemed sinners proclaim to the world the marvelous outpouring of God's grace, love, and purpose for humanity. And then he finished his email with this. Revere it, protect it, nourish it, be joyful in it, be saturated by it. That's what God has called us to be. We're not tourists. We're to be a family, joined together, unified around Jesus Christ, and growing together into the fullness of Christ. Might we live that truth? Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the amazing reality that you have brought together the church, people of different kinds and races and, and economic abilities and just personalities. And God, you have brought us together to once again demonstrate who you are. The wisdom of God Almighty, not only... <laughs> to those around us, but to the angels in heaven. Incredible. God, that's your purpose in us. Might you fill us with your spirit, God. Might you enable us to be a, an accurate portrait of Jesus Christ to this community for your glory. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.